One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If all of you out there listening could just have been here for the technical shenanigans that just went on, it would be highly. You mean the technical shit show that went on? This was like teaching your grandparents how to use a laptop for the first time <laughs> at Thanksgiving level cluster. And by which, by which Susan means teaching her how to use a microphone. <laughs> To be clear, if Zachary were not here, none of us would be able to even turn on the computer probably by now. So but true. the important thing is for the first time in a long time, we can see each other. Woo-hoo. So I know that being an audio experience doesn't mean much for you <laughs> listening out there. It means a lot to us. <laughs> who haven't seen each other in almost a year. It's pretty nice. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Stocking the Cabinet edition. I'm Shane. Is that like Harris. stocking trout in a pond? I think that's with an L. Oh, oh, you mean like, oh, yes, it could be both, or, actually. No, you're not like following the trout around. Isn't that how you catch fish? Pond, you you have to, like, you sneak up on the fish and like grab it. <laughs> like a... <laughs> okay, I'm going to be stuck with that image now for a while. This is not a fishing podcast, no. <laughs> luckily. Hopefully. What if we did is that we should do a podcast on work where we just talk about something like just completely out of our domain of expertise. Like I'll talk about football. I'll talk about astronomy. Oh, I like that. Oh, I got your attention, didn't I? I think we should all talk about things we know nothing about. (laughs) Some people might say. Like you're not allowed to talk about football. You you should like have to talk about, uh, I don't know, foosball. But I know something about foosball. What about like differential equations? I couldn't say shit about that. There you go. Curling. That would be very good. Yeah, I may know something about curling. Shane knows a little something about everything. I know about my virtual jungle studio where we can see each other for the first time. I'm here with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi, Shane. And Zachary's hanging out there, too. This is almost as good as being together. I mean, not really. It's Not like, really. It's like 25% as good. Um, but I'm in a new studio myself today, as you can see. Well, you can't see it at home. It's but I'll the, the new Spangled Studio. It is. Joe built me a podcast studio. What a guy. Very like bunker-esque. It is like a bunker. It's so sweet. It's like not very big. It's like the size of two phone booths. For those of you listening at home, phone booths were things that were like little cabins <laughs> on the street where people used to make phone calls and the FBI would listen to them. <laughs> It was great. Oh, boy. On the podcast this week, President-elect Biden continues building his cabinet, but his pick for defense secretary leaves some supporters cold like a trout in a stream. (laughs) Administration officials drag their feet on the transition as Trump's lawyers mount increasingly absurd and dangerous efforts to overturn the election. And the White House tries to rally support for a controversial weapons sale to the United Arab Emirates as the Gulf Arab states look ahead to a Biden administration that may be more skeptical of close ties. Let us start with the news of the week, well, I guess of the day, past day or so. Uh, Joe Biden has announced that he will nominate retired General Lloyd Austin as the next Secretary of Defense. Austin was the commander of Central Command. Uh, he has not been out of uniform, though, for very long, which means Congress will have to grant him a waiver from the law that prohibits retired officers from becoming secretary until at least seven years after retirement. This came up with uh, Jim Mattis' nomination, remember, four years ago in the Trump administration. Biden's pick is leaving a lot of supporters cold. As I said, there are those who think that Austin's primary experience in the Middle East makes him less suited to strategic conflict with China, which I think most people would say is kind of the, the number one big issue for the future defense secretary. There are also concerns about having another retired general in charge at the Pentagon. Uh, And a lot of people in Washington, particularly women in national security, had hoped that Biden would select Michelle Flournoy uh, in what would have been an historic pick. And in theirs and others' estimation, the right one, given her expertise and her policy credentials, uh, which is arguably something that Austin lacks. Susan, I want to come to you on this first. It, It seems like Biden has put himself in at least two political binds with this selection. Um, First, as I said, he has disappointed a lot of women who wanted to see a diverse cabinet. 
Although it should be said, Austin's confirmation, of course, would be historic because he would be the first black person to serve as the defense secretary. Second, though, a lot of Democrats who either four years ago voted against giving a waiver to Jim Mattis or said they would never do it again are now faced with having to contradict themselves lest they buck the new president and his choice for this really important post. So given these predicaments, why do you think Biden picked Austin? Uh, and what does this tell us about how he's making some of his cabinet selections? Yeah, so Biden has already gotten a lot of pushback on this pick, as you mentioned, so much so that he actually wrote an article in The Atlantic yesterday explaining why uh, he had picked uh, Lloyd Austin to be his sec def. Um, never a great sign when you have to come out to defend uh, your choice before you've basically before you've even formally announced it. In a really long essay, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I think the two issues you know that you're mentioning actually are ultimately related. So um, as you said, there is a statute that requires that any individual who served within the past seven years has to get an affirmative waiver from Congress uh, in order to serve as the Secretary of Defense. And the idea here is this sort of, in, it creates kind of a rebuttable presumption, right? It creates a presumption that the president is not going to nominate someone who has been, who has served within seven years, unless there's sort of extraordinary circumstances, because uh, it's one way, not the only way, but one way that we preserve this idea of sort of civilian control of the military, and, and we want to sort of um, uh, allow more separation. The law actually used to be 10 years. Now it's seven years. It's a little bit of an arbitrary number, but that's what it is. We waived this rule. Congress waived this rule for Jim Mattis in an extraordinary circumstance, the extraordinary circumstance being um, we just elected Donald Trump to be president of the United States. That was really, really scary. Jim Mattis was willing to serve. And that seems like a reason to make an exception in this case. Now, it's sort of perplexing why Biden has chosen to sort of pick this particular fight, because I think the way to understand it is um, you can deviate from the norm one time. Um, but if you do it twice, if you give a waiver for both Mattis and now Austin, in the future, it's not the sort of expectation is not going to be that members of Congress have to explain their reason for granting a waiver but instead that they'll have to explain their reason for not granting a waiver. And already we see it now, people saying, well, you granted it for Mattis, so why not Austin? Well, next time it's going to be, well, you granted it for, for Mattis and for Austin, so why not this next person? And so that's why I sort of get to the perplexingness of the choice. Joe Biden, right out of the gate, after campaigning on wanting to preserve all of these norms and restore them, is choosing to permanently dismantle a norm and to take a norm that the Trump era dismantled and, and, and to sort of take it one step further and, and I think institutionalize it in a way that there's no going back from that. And so then whenever you say, okay, maybe you could understand making that decision if Austin was the only plausible candidate. His hand was forced. He felt like this is really the only person who could do the job and it was worth it. But then whenever you look at the alternative candidates, um, Michelle Flournoy and, and also others, it's not like there's only two people on earth that could do this job. Then it, I, I do think it really starts to become a head scratcher as whether or not Biden sort of doesn't recognize uh, that this is going to permanently alter a norm or, or maybe Biden's saying he doesn't think this seven year separation period actually is that important and is that big of a deal moving forward. So, Tammy, take that on to some degree. This gets at the question of, you know, as, as Susan said, obviously there are more than two people who are qualified to do this job. But I think everyone agreed that Michelle Flournoy, in terms of her credentials, was like really qualified to do this job. She'd been the director or the undersecretary for policy, which is like the number three position. So, so talk a bit about that. And, and this kind of does Austin have a deficit here in terms of his credentials? Yeah, I have to say. Contra some of my colleagues, I'm less concerned about the fact that Austin is coming out of a very heavily CENTCOM background. I think anyone who has been a senior general officer over the last two decades is going to have spent a lot of time in the CENTCOM AOR. And yeah, there are definitely general officers with you know stronger NATO experience and stronger Asian experience than uh, Lloyd Austin, but you can learn that stuff. You know, it's not it's not impossible and you have staff to support you on that stuff. So that doesn't bother me so much. I do think the norm issue that, that Susan focused on is important. And I also think that, yes, there were a range of options, including Tammy Duckworth, you know, wounded veteran, 
civilian woman <laughs> or Jay Johnson, uh, who was general counsel of the Defense Department, a reputation as a great manager and leader and another African-American male. So like there was actually kind of an embarrassment of riches for this job in a way. And so watching the the formal announcement today, what came through really clearly is the personal trust between the president-elect and Lloyd Austin. And this is because they worked together on something that matters a lot to Biden. And I'm guessing now that I've watched it, from his perspective, something that he thinks should send a really strong signal to the American public, which was the military withdrawal from Iraq and the military to civilian handover of the American role in Iraq. And um, there was a, a good tweet thread last night from Barbara Leaf, who was a senior American diplomat in embassy Baghdad at that time and worked very closely with Lloyd Austin. And she gave a great testimonial about his diplomatic skills, about how much he respected and was inclusive of his civilian counterparts, and how successful that handoff was. And that, I think, is a perspective that we hadn't heard until the president's announcement today, that that's what he values in Lloyd Austin. He wants to de-emphasize the military tool in American foreign policy and put diplomacy front and center. And he thinks this guy gets it. So I have to say, like, that makes a lot of sense to me. On the on the gender issue, yes, this is this is a groundbreaking nomination, and given the concerns over racism and white supremacy in the military, um, I think it is a powerful and important statement. I can't help but be disappointed that we didn't see a woman in this role, and I think that it will be on Lloyd Austin and on the president-elect and vice president-elect to ensure that there's strong representation of women at other parts of the Defense Department and across the rest of the national security bureaucracy. So, you know, I think they just have a bar to clear now. Yeah. Ben. So I would, uh, I have really mixed feelings about this. I, I spent a fair bit of yesterday talking to people who, you know, are defense policy experts, and uh, there was just no enthusiasm that I could detect for this nomination. Even people who uh, really wanted to downplay the gender diversity component of it, just didn't seem enthusiastic about Lloyd Austin for this role. And I I kind of went into it uh, expecting to be, to sort of figure out what the case for him was. And I was not really able to do that. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, I am not one of those people who says, it is illegitimate for the president to have as a defense secretary somebody he's really comfortable with and gels with and worked closely with. That all seems to me like a, uh, you know, you, you obviously don't want to take that too far and create a kind of old boys club out of that instinct. But the idea that the 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 idea that the president should have as a defense secretary somebody whom he's comfortable working with, whose instincts he trusts, is actually one that I have a lot of time for. I do think one important diversity element of this uh, hire, which is going to create complexity, is that it puts an enormous amount of pressure on the president-elect to have an attorney general that is female. And the press about- Or a CIA director. Or a CIA director- but the press about those two roles right now is actually cutting the other direction that the, you know, the last I saw the attorney general betting was on either Doug Jones or Merrick Garland and the CIA rising star was David Cohen, you know, all of which suggests that you might end up with a significant gender diversity issue in the security components of the cabinet. Like, I also think, you know, just to sort of briefly change on your point, you know, uh, Secretary of Defense and CIA director are not the same thing. And we already went through this once with sort of passing over Susan Rice for Secretary of State. And so, yes, we're looking at the cabinet altogether and cabinet level, but having a, a male Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State and Attorney General even whenever you have uh, the rest of the cabinet, that itself is, a, it, to me, is a significant statement. 
I, I agree. And I would add national security advisor. And I would say that the candidates you mentioned, Ben, are not just men, they're white men. Um, and so there's a broader diversity issue for the cabinet as a whole and for the national security cabinet. I also think that it's, you know, we really shouldn't be thinking about this as either at CIA or at Justice. There needs, like, why not have both of them be women? There really are plenty of candidates. My worry about seeing how important the personal relationships are for the president-elect is that you get harmony among your team, but you also get a lot of deference and you maybe get some groupthink because these are people who have all hung out with him for such a long time. And, you know, sometimes you need to mix it up in your cabinet and hear things that you wouldn't hear from a really good friend. And it does seem to that degree to me that emotion is driving and, and relationship is driving a lot of his picks. But there's something that kind of scrambled my thinking on the cabinet when he picked Austin, which was that heretofore, it seems like, at least in the national security places where we've been paying attention to, the two things that Biden has wanted to seem to avoid are A, picking a fight or pissing off the left of his party, i.e. Mike Morrell is probably not going to be CIA director because Ron Wyden will object over his defense of torture and interrogations. Uh, and B, you don't want to lose moderate, he doesn't want to lose moderate Republicans. C, Susan Rice will not be secretary of state because Susan Collins is still pissed that she threatened to run against her for Senate in Maine. So, okay, if that's the idea, you don't want to anger your far left or the Republicans in the middle that you need, why would he pick Lloyd Austin and then force a bunch of Democrats to walk the plank and look like hypocrites and reverse themselves on this really principled stand they took four years ago with Mattis? And so that is just kind of, you know, it, it scrambled me a bit. Susan, then Ben. Yeah. And look, um, your point about personal relationships, that's not separate from the bias question. And this idea, I actually think it's really problematic to think that uh, or to not recognize that um, whenever we have cabinet level decisions being made based on sort of the personal comfort of the of sort of the president and how much they like somebody and get along with somebody, um, you know, we know that historically that creates a bias against women, right? That's the heart of the problem. That's what you're supposed to be correcting for. And so a little bit, um, I, I don't think we should accept the, the explanation of, oh, this is just who Biden liked more. Um, you know, that that's kind of the problem. Yeah, I actually disagree with that. And I'm going to say this at some risk of the wrath of the rational security listenership. But I think when you are uh, the president-elect in a national emergency situation, the question of who you want to work with is a different question than it is when you're, say, an organization that is trying to resist implicit bias. These, these, these hires are extremely specific and personal, and they, I do think the comfort level of the principal has a role to play in that. Now, I also think, to be fair to Susan's point, that in aggregate diversity is a very important thing. And I think Biden, to his credit, has done a lot in the cabinet in that area, with the solitary exception of Avril Haines, that does not seem yet to involve the security cabinet components, though. Well, before any of these talented uh, and ready to serve people can actually get to the Senate for their confirmation. We got to get through a transition. How'd you like that? See, transition, transition. Yeah, it's a segue through the transition. Which transition is he going to talk about? Uh, <laughs> the Trump campaign continues its efforts to overturn election results, which would be pretty laughable if they weren't so corrosive to democracy. Uh, so far, not only have most Republicans remained silent as the, as Trump baselessly tries to persuade judges of massive fraud with no evidence and bring apparently drunk people to testify before canvassing boards. She or says she was happened. not drunk. That's oh, that's what well, she usually. Well, is then like. maybe she should start drinking. <laughs> because it would That's be quite a defense. You're like, no, 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 wow. I'm, not, I, I'm always like that. Yeah, I always slur my words. That I wasn't shy. You, you probably were. You probably were. Anyway, um, I heard SNL tried to parody her. It probably didn't work out because it was too true to life. Anyway, uh, but some lawmakers have actually now 
joined in this attempt rather than just remain silent. Ted Cruz volunteered to argue a case before the Supreme Court, uh, which yesterday, Tuesday, rejected an appeal from the campaign to contest election results in Pennsylvania. We've got this bonkers effort, I guess, in Texas where people want to invalidate results in other states that aren't even theirs. And meanwhile, the administration has been dragging its feet on the transition. We reported recently at the Post that officials were kind of slow rolling the Biden intelligence community transition team's efforts to meet with Defense Department intelligence agencies, which includes the NSA. So even though the GSA has sort of allowed the transition to begin, it's halting, I think is one way to describe it. Ben, start us off here. I feel like there are two tracks. There's the legal effort to overturn the election and the administration's efforts to create friction in the transition. I think the latter probably has more chance of success, but they really feel like they're part of the same effort to me to hobble the incoming administration and make it seem illegitimate to voters. Do you see it that way too? I do. You know, somebody posted today on Twitter and I forget who, so I apologize to whoever it was, the, a picture of Biden uh, hosting Mike Pence a few days after the election at the White House uh, in 2016. And the person captioned it with a question, what has Mike Pence done for Kamala Harris? And, you know, the, I think it's a very fair question. You know, there are a series of understandings about the way an outgoing administration behaves toward an incoming administration. And they're rooted in, you know, something you might colloquially call patriotism, right? It's just the idea that there's something larger than our petty squabbles over who's going to win this election, who's going to be president, and it's the continuity and day-to-day functioning of the U.S. government. And what the Trump outgoing Trump administration has said is basically, fuck that. This is all an extension of the war to hold on to power. And if we are not going to hold on to power, first of all, we're not going to admit that we're not holding on to power. But secondly, to whatever extent we might have to concede that in practice, we're certainly not going to act like there's anything legitimate about it. And that means giving minimal information. It means cooperating only when you're kind of forced to with the transition process. And it means litigating frivolously all the way. And so I do think it is all part of one package, and it's a very ugly package. Tammy. Yeah, I I don't at all disagree with Ben's fundamental diagnosis that this is about creating a strong sense of illegitimacy around the incoming administration. But I also think that there are some tactical goals. Some of them are tactical goals of members of the administration, maybe not of the president himself. So, for example, Mike Pompeo's, you know, war to create as much baggage as he can on labeling the BDS movement anti-Semitic has more to do with Mike Pompeo than it has to do with Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump cares. I think there are also people in Trump world who have made a lot of money off of their association with Donald Trump, and they want to be able to maximize their gains. And the longer this goes on, the more they can all command donations for their super PACs and fees for their media commentary and book deals and all the other crap that comes along with it. And the minute Trump is not president anymore, their dollar value goes down significantly. And then the third is the grift of the Trumps themselves. You know, they are actually raising a lot of money for Trump's own super PAC. The fundraising emails that they are sending out to fund their challenge of the election, three quarters of the money goes to his super PAC for God knows what. One quarter only goes to the RNC, which is, you know, filing these challenges. And so they want that to keep going as long as possible because that gives him maximum money to fund whatever his political ambitions may be next and to keep his lock hold over the Republican Party. And just to put it, before I go to Susan, real quick, just to put a point on that too, we had a story in the Post this week about this legal group, the Thomas More Society, I guess it was, which basically seems to exist, according to the reporting, simply to file 
baseless lawsuits to allow there to be a claim that there is still a court challenge going on, which, you know, arguably is just to put more money in the coffer. So, I mean, there's an infrastructure and a, and a machinery that is rolling in place here that appears you know, quite cynical, considering that, like, as bad as many of these lawyers are, they can't possibly believe this is going to result in Donald Trump you know, remaining in office. Susan. No, I mean, look, I, I agree with all of that. I also think this is a context in which there's lots of different mixed motives here, right? There are people who are just trying to wound Biden moving into the future. There are people who are trying to profit off of this. Um, I think that there are people, and, and I think that Donald Trump might be part of this, um, that actually are making a long shot effort to hold on to power and figure, you know, if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, then they're no worse off. And so, you know, I, I think all of those things can be commingled and true at the same time. Um, I, I do think it's all bad. <laughs> These are all bad actors. I mean, it's really worth sort of examining, though, what congressional Republicans and establishment Republicans are doing and the role they are playing in this, um, because that's going to be the group that's going to try and pretend as though like they had nothing to do with any of this when all is said and done. And that's that, you know, we talked about this sort of in the days after the election, like allowing these ridiculous conspiracy theories to sort of take root, not taking that moment to really push back and say, you know, no, like there are no there's no evidence of voting fraud. Uh, you know, the president is lying. He's making this stuff up, right? Refusing to sort of push back quickly um, and letting it kind of, you know, burn out of control. Um, and then second, to understand the fundamental dishonesty of the position they're taking. So Republicans like Ted Cruz are saying and, and have said uh, the president has a right to uh, make legal claims and have them adjudicated in court. And this is the process and this is the process that exists. And it's perfectly acceptable for a president to attempt to use this process to, to get answers to his questions. Who are we to criticize that? The problem is, is that these are these Republicans, these same people are not coming in and accepting the, the court's adjudication and opinions and the outcomes and saying, OK, he got to test those claims and now they're resolved. And so it's all legitimate moving forward. Instead, they're doing like the, the cute little double step where first they're saying, well, it's OK to raise these claims, even though they're plainly just attempting to sort of delegitimize the election more broadly. And then even whenever courts do say, you know, go away, this is BS, sort of in as strong a language as, as is available to the federal judiciary to do that, instead of turning around and messaging to their sort of constituencies, hey, uh, it's over, they're basically saying, well, the courts got it wrong. And so Biden is president on a technicality because these courts helped him steal the election. It's just it is profoundly cynical, corrosive stuff at play. And, and I think that they're counting on everybody to just kind of forget about it in a few months. Ben. I just also want to add to that, that for those of us who are old enough to remember the 2000 election, actually, the Republican case that George W. Bush had won was quite good. But the uh, Democratic concerns about what happened in Florida were far from trivial. And the Republican position at the time was not that, yes, Al Gore should sue, should challenge the results of this election and raise whatever legal claims he has. That's the way the system works. It was ferocious opposition to that and the insistence that the certified vote was the last word on the subject. By the way, I don't recall anybody saying, uh, including Al Gore, that it was okay for Al Gore to file frivolous claims. Al Gore's position was he filed basically one significant lawsuit that I, you know, the Supreme Court divided on. It was a substantial, it was a genuinely substantial question. I just want to read a quote, actually, today from Mitt Romney on this subject. This was, uh, I guess, Frank Thorpe, uh, who's a producer and a reporter at NBC News. I guess he must have caught him at some point on the Hill. Got him to comment on GOP representatives threatening to protest the Electoral College vote. Romney said, quote, this is madness. We have a process. Recounts are appropriate. Going to the court is appropriate and pursuing every legal avenue is appropriate. But trying to get electors not to do what the people voted to do is madness. It would be saying, look, let's not follow the vote of the people. Let's instead do what we want. That would not be the way a democratic republic ought to work. And then Frank asked him, are you confident that anything like that would be rejected here? And he did say, yes. That is probably the most forceful I've seen anyone 
put it. I mean, it, it genuinely is madness. I mean, and it seems to me that one thing we don't put a finger up enough on enough is we're looking to the Electoral College to somehow come in and sort of settle this and say, okay, finally, now Joe Biden is the president. The fact that so many lawmakers are willing to engage in this and therefore demonstrate an outright hostility to democracy, what someone from their own party, their former nominee is calling madness. I think that's sort of where to draw the underscore here. It's like the system isn't like breaking. It's broke. (laughs) Tammy. Yeah, well, and I think the fact that it is broke is evidenced by um, the fact that the reasons for those Republican lawmakers supposedly not recognizing reality and not being able to say what phase of the process will be sufficient to satisfy them on legitimacy grounds, that's because those excuses are mere excuses that they will keep doing this as long as the guy who runs their party, Donald Trump, wants them to do it well past January 20th, if that's what he decides. And for them, you know, going back to the point from the very beginning, you know, for them, undermining the legitimacy of the Biden presidency, both before and after inauguration, that's a win-win. There's just no reason for them to ever stop playing that game. And so I appreciate that Mitt Romney is trying to create an alternative poll for Republicans to rally around to say, actually, process does matter. I think the party is too far gone for that. Look, and I think it's too far gone at this point. I don't think that would have necessarily been true had they stepped in earlier. I think it's descriptively true now. They they fear the base. This idea has taken root. This, there were a thousand think pieces prior to the election about how the real concern was whether or not the liberals were going to be willing to concede defeat um, by by our colleagues at, at Brookings and uh, and others. Uh, you know, other uh, prominent conservative legal scholars. Adrian Vermeule, you know, said, well, you know, the the right accepts the uh, you know the that the other side can win and the left never does. And and that's what we're going to see in this next election. Look at what happened after Hillary Clinton uh, lost in 2016. Yeah, there was like the the Hamilton electors movement. Jill Stein was able to raise $2 million, right? The the sort of the the impulse of that was there in this sort of highly emotional moment. Um, But it never went anywhere because the the sort of the mainstream party just refused to entertain it even for one second. And the problem is now that they've entertained it, it's not enough to do what would have been sufficient 24 hours later or 48 hours later. Now that we're, you know, three weeks later or four weeks, I've lost even track of time since the election at this point, they're actually going to have to come in if they wanted to be responsible and forcefully denounce this stuff and really push back hard to even begin to get it under control. These like mealy mouth statements of, oh, like, well, the process has resolved itself and let's all move forward. Like, that's not going to cut it. And it like it, this was foreseeable that it was going to get out of control and it's gotten out of control, you know, and and, and we're going to see a lot of people sort of staring at their shoes and, and, and shuffling, uh, you know, in the next couple of months as we see like Republican confidence in our system of democracy and the legitimacy of our elections being eroded and for the long term. Well, Republican lawmakers seem totally fine with uh, letting the president attack democracy, but they've sure got some problems with weapon sales to the United Arab Emirates. A lot of finger pointing on this one. Uh, The White House is scrambling to get support for an expected Senate vote this week to block the administration's $23 billion sale of F-35 fighter jets. Reaper drones and other munitions to the UAE. Uh, the sale is attracted bipartisan opposition. Critics argue that the sales, which are ostensibly to help the UAE bolster its defenses against Iran, ignore the threat these weapons could pose to Israel uh, and the risk that the UAE will pass sensitive military technology to Russia and China, an idea that the UAE ambassador recently said in a tweet thread was absurd. Uh, this isn't the first time the administration in this administration that lawmakers from both parties have tried to block weapon sales in the Middle East. And Trump is uh, likely to veto any effort by Congress to constrain him here. So, Tammy, we know the administration loves making deals that involve big dollar weapon systems. We remember him sitting in the office with Mohammed bin Salman with the little poster board with all the price tags of the various planes and whatnot on it. And now the administration has gone to great lengths to sell arms, obviously, both to the Saudis and the UAE. So does this mean that relations with these two countries are now just as partisan in Washington as anything else? Yeah, I think this is the question that the governments in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi need to be asking themselves. 
And if it is, what they might want to do about that. I mean, for the Saudis, I think it's much, much sharper that the U.S.-Saudi relationship has become politicized in Washington today in a way that was never true before. And that's because of the mutual embrace between Trump and Mohammed bin Salman, Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman. It's some of the same dynamics that we've seen talking about the U.S., the Trump administration and Benjamin Netanyahu, right? That the tighter Trump hugs him and the tighter he hugs Trump, the more Republicans react in one direction and Democrats react in the other. But it's also true that this is an administration that has demonstrated just a complete lack of regard for human rights concerns, whether it is the bombing of civilians by Saudi aircraft in Yemen or uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a journalist working for The Washington Post. And so that also produces a partisan valence in the reaction because, sadly, there are more vocal advocates uh, for international human rights among the Democratic Party on the Hill than there are among Republicans on Capitol Hill. But there are Republicans on Capitol Hill who care about protecting uh, America's reputation in its arms sales. And there are Republicans who care about Israeli security and about our national security concerns in these arms sales. And what Trump's done here, like he hasn't done any favors for the Emiratis by pushing this thing through so quickly and in such a bullheaded way that doesn't even attempt to address the concerns you mentioned, Shane, about like, our most sophisticated attack aircraft sitting in a hangar, you know, on a base where Chinese military advisors are also wandering around. It's not about the Emiratis like giving this stuff away irresponsibly, but we do have real concerns. Those are legitimate concerns. And the White House is so uninterested in even addressing that, that it's generated opposition on the Hill. So this vote I suspect that the motion of disapproval for this arms sale will fail and that the arms sale will go through, but it will not fail by much. It will be much, much closer than it needed to be because Trump pushed such a big package so carelessly and so fast. And that leaves the Emiratis holding the bag next year when they find themselves with a support base on the Hill that's been eroded by Donald Trump supposedly doing them a favor. Question, Tammy, what is the likely Biden administration attitude to the Emiratis going to be like? Because on the one hand, I, you know, you look at this and you say they do have human rights concerns that the Trump administration will not have. The UAE has not behaved well in Yemen and its domestic record is pretty bad. On the other hand, you know, the Biden administration will come in and see in the UAE and the Saudi and the Bahraini relative embrace of Israel in the last six months, all a fairly exciting realignment against Iran, or at least coming into the open of a pre-existing kind of de facto military alliance against Iran. Uh, and that is going to be as attractive to the Biden people as it is to the Trump people. So when the new administration comes in and there's this weapon sale on the table, do they look at it as something that is, you know, good from a United States perspective? Or is this something that the administration is likely to have a change of heart on as it changes party? One of the interesting features from my perspective of this debate is that although the Emiratis were granted this arms package by the Trump administration in connection with their diplomatic opening to Israel, that has not deterred either Republicans or Democrats on the Hill who have concerns about the package from raising those concerns and saying they're going to vote for the motion for disapproval. So it's not like a magic bullet to solve those concerns. You know, if that's true now, that is going to be true once Biden takes office as well. I think the bigger question, you know, the Saudis are like recalcitrant. They just are who they are. And if you don't like it, that's on you. The Emiratis, I think, are well, first of all, they're much smaller and much more dependent on the United States's partnership in a lot of ways, but they're also more nimble diplomatically. And so I think that the relationship with Israel is part of adjusting their position in Washington. 
to be one that's congenial to a Biden administration as well. And there's more that they could do in that regard. You know, they are still involved in this horrific civil war in Libya. They could play a more constructive role in conflict resolution there and elsewhere in the region. And I think if they want the Biden administration to look on them, not through a partisan lens, but in a more congenial way, they definitely have more steps that they can take. And Tammy, sort of relatedly, how should sort of the transition be approaching how they participate in sort of the public conversation in this very, very unusual period? So ordinarily, um, you know, we would expect a lot of restraint from the transition from the president-elect. We talk a lot about there being one president at a time and that being really important. It's a norm. We love norms. It's a norm. We love norm. Norm. Uh, norm. You know, that said, ordinarily, a transition is participating in good faith uh, with an administration transition process. Um, you don't have outgoing administrations that are necessarily up to these kinds of shenanigans. I think sort of based on what we've seen uh, the Biden transition do thus far, like they've been very conventional, right? Issuing sort of open, uh, you know, sort of constrained statements of, you know, kind of expressing mild policy positions, but not actually sort of taking an aggressive position on, on this and any number of other issues. Um, you know, is there an argument to say, hey, like the other side's the one that ripped up the rule book. This is important. Biden and, and Harris should be weighing in really aggressively on these issues. So going back to our earlier conversation about which norms does the incoming administration want to restore, this one about not playing in foreign policy when you're not yet in office is one that they've been very strong on. And I think it's not so much about, you know, we don't want to play revenge games and we don't want to destroy this norm. I think it, it's linked more to the Russian interference story of 2016 and not wanting to engage in communication with foreign governments in any way that might be perceived as in any sense that 2016 interference. And so the Logan Act. Right. So that appears to saying anything almost about foreign policy. Because you think engaging publicly leads, right? So I'm not suggesting they should have those conversations with foreign governments, more just should they be more aggressive participants in the public debate. But you think they're so nervous about the back channel that they, they don't even want to weigh in publicly. I don't think it's that they're nervous about the back channel. I think it's that they're nervous about the perception that they are back channeling. And I think they are nervous about the perception that they're acting like Trump did in November, December 2016, which they and everyone who supports them agrees was inappropriate and in some cases illegal. So that's, I think, the deterrent. But honestly, Biden's going to get a crack at this because even if the resolution of disapproval fails, he still has to implement this arms sale. It's There are a lot of steps to go through. So it will be sitting on his desk waiting for him. He'll get a chance to weigh in on it. Tammy, just in the minute or so we have left, can you just take a minute to just talk briefly about the relationship that the Biden administration will have towards the Saudis vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Jamal Khashoggi's murder, which obviously the Trump administration just kind of like moved past it and swept it under the rug, which is not to say the Biden administration couldn't do the same thing, but do you think that they will feel compelled to kind of put that back on the table and say, like, no, we have not resolved this particular incident. And, you're, you know, there's a new sheriff in town and there's retroactively some consequence for this. So first of all, Biden was very clear during the campaign about wanting to do what he called reassess our partnership with Saudi Arabia. He also said they're basically a pariah and we should treat them like the pariah they are. So yeah, he sent some pretty strong signals on that. But this is another case where congressional action means that he's going to have decisions waiting for him on day one. One of them is there was a requirement in last year's National Defense Authorization Act that the CIA prepare a report for Congress, a public report, summarizing its understanding of who's responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The Trump administration has simply refused to fulfill that legal requirement. Uh, they're being sued over it right now. And so, like, Biden's going to have to decide very quickly, do I do I follow the law and send this report to Congress? So even if he were disinclined to pick that fight, it's going to be there. And so I think they're probably preparing to use it for best advantage. 
Well, waiting for us now are object lessons. Uh, Ben, why don't you go first? So the British Pulitzers were announced today. They are uh, given out. They're called the British Journalism Awards, and they were given out uh, by something called the Press Gazette. And I was delighted to see the announcement for the award for the Marie Colvin Award. Marie Colvin was a journalist for the Sunday Times who was killed uh, a few years ago. And there is an award uh, called the Marie Colvin Award in her honor. And it was given today to our own Sophia Yan of The Telegraph. And the Lawfare official pianist, who, of course, in her day job is the China correspondent for The Telegraph, Uh, the judges said of Sophia, quote, she has a tenacity and seriousness of purpose that Marie Colvin would have admired. Xi Jinping's China is one of the most important and most difficult countries in the world to cover, which is one reason we have so admired her reporting. Like Marie, Sophia is determined to get to the truth, exposing cruelty, injustice, and the abuse of human rights, despite all attempts to stop her. So this was in response to Sophia's coverage of the situation in Xinjiang, as well as the virus and the early pandemic in China. And I sent her a congratulatory note today and got back a note from Wuhan, where she is still reporting uh, a year after uh, the outbreak of the virus. So congratulations to Sophia and good call from the British uh, Journalism Awards. Here, here. Susan. My object lesson is one of the small solaces of quarantine has been that I have a really nice view out of my window, including one that I look at while I record rational security. It's the small comfort of my life. And somehow in the past three days, a bunch of plastic bags have flown up and gotten stuck in the branches of this tree, ruining my view. And so I have spent the last several days trying to use various implements in my house to knock down this series of bags from our tree. And my object lesson is the futility of life and that my life is now an unfunny version of 30 Rock because this also happened in that show. But I would like listeners to give me suggestions what sort of implement would you use to extract a plastic bag that has firmly wrapped itself around branches of a tree? There must be a tool that exists. How far away is it? So I can't get to it through the window because these are storm windows. So I have to come from below. And I would say it's probably 11 feet. Fire. How about a flaming arrow? Yes! If anybody has good enough aim, I'm not above that. Just set the tree on fire. You realize you're talking to a guy who likes to blow up baby cannons. I've Googled like tree grabbing implements. I'm serious. A candle will solve this problem for you on the end of a broomstick. I mean, the tree is wood. And it's (laughs) not going to set a tree on fire. But you're going to burn off. uh, You're going to burn off. I mean, I'm not a firefighter, but I'm pretty sure Smokey the Bear disagrees. I read some stories out of California recently. Uh, This is D.C. It rains a lot here. Uh, We have good forest management. Get a broom. Get a rake. Now Ben's never going to become Secretary of Interior. Anyway, my object lesson is a plea for help. Any non-fire-based implements okay. that I can get this bag down, man, so I don't lose my ever-loving mind. Notice how I gave her a solution and then she changed the challenge to exclude my Ooh. solution. Yeah, yeah. Well, listeners, will, our listeners are capable people and uh, and they pay attention and they will have a solution for you, I'm sure. Uh, and I was reminded this week that our listeners pay attention and apparently have got my number because I must have received about, I don't know, like 874 ats on Twitter about an interview 
Uh, <laughs> it's not like you don't talk about your affinity for this issue, Shane. Here, out of nowhere, all these people kept sending me this article. He was asking for it. Why did they think of you in connection with this? I don't know. So there's this retired Israeli general and current professor, as if that is supposed to somehow enhance this man's credentials, uh, named Haim Ished, who gave an interview to a publication in Israel in which he says, he's also the former space security chief, apparently, that there is something called a galactic federation of extraterrestrials that have been in contact with Israel and the U.S. for years, but are keeping themselves a secret to prevent hysteria until humanity is ready for the truth. Um, Apparently, Donald Trump was ready to, like, you know, blow the whole cover including the fact that there's an underground colony uh, on Mars where humans and aliens have been living together. Uh, But he was persuaded uh, to finally keep it a secret because he thought people couldn't handle it, which is basically the one part of the story that tells you that it's total horseshit. Yeah, that's the part of the story. (laughs) That's the part. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I might be willing to believe you, sir, on some idea that the Israelis had heard from the aliens, but not on this idea that Donald Trump has kept it a secret. I like the assertion that there was a contract signed opening with the 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 question of, like, whose law applies to the (laughs) aliens. That the U.S. ended up as the authoritative interlocutor. Exactly. This is there's like a conflict of laws issue here. I, it's it's a very. I mean, look to say it's a very strange story is is putting it mildly. It's I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that the uh, the former space security chief. Full disclosure, I have no idea who this man is. Who better to know than the former space security chief? Who is who is 87, and is retired? Maybe has some time on his hands, and maybe his family should check on him. <laughs> Are you calling for a welfare check on the man? Mm, maybe. I don't know. I think his alien friends might not be looking after his best interest right now. But I did, I did just want to say that I really felt the love. And I'm, I'm sorry that I couldn't respond to all of you on the day that you sent these at me. But it was just it was an overwhelming amount of, tw- of tweets. And please keep wife. spamming Shane with alien news. I love it. It's I the love only it. way he's going to learn. The only way. I don't know. I think I'm going to have to make a flight over to Jerusalem as soon as possible so Professor uh, Shed and I can uh, sit down and have a talk. Uh, but that's not going to happen this week. And it's not going to happen in the next few minutes. But we are going to wrap up this podcast. It was oh. so nice to actually see everyone today. My yeah. God. Amazing. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Ben, are you selling that hammock in the Lawfare store? This Latvian handmade hammock <laughs> is available on Etsy. It is awesome. I it is. It is. It looks I strongly very Latvian. encourage everyone to get a Latvian handmade hammock chair for their work at home studios. Okay, well, you can get that at Etsy or, you know, at, at rationalsecurity.latvia. We need, it looks we need... like a swaddled baby, just like rocking back and forth. Like like a birch I, branch I, I, can't, I can't even comment on that. It's crazy. Like, damn, he's had enough. Just like, get this thing out of my son. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. We love to hear from you, and it helps our listeners, including uh, in Mars and in Latvia, to find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week, as always, is Zachary Frank. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Lloyd Austin with his very forceful rendition of Don't You Want Me. Oh, okay. And it's very commanding. It's don't. You want me. Well, and the answer is yes. A baby. Apparently. Don't call me baby. And Sophia Yan, I'm sure, could play keys on that song easily. Yeah, the award winning Sophia Yan. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Coffinwittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 